0: This is The Advisory Board with Megan Flamer and Alan Jones. Whether
1: you're starting out or figuring out your next stage of growth, The Advisory Board is here to lend a helping hand.
2: We've been here before and we've helped thousands of founders, CEOs and organisations all over the world take their lives and businesses to the next level. Each week, entrepreneur, advisor and wellbeing consultant, Megan Flamer.
1: That's me. And serial startup founder, advisor and investor Alan Jones... That's me. (laughs) ...will take on the real issues from entrepreneurs like you and show you how to win the day with kindness and a little tough love.
2: Whether you're taking your first steps as an entrepreneur or navigating the twists and turns of scaling up, the advisory board has got your back.
1: Tune in for a concentrated shot of advice that'll answer your questions, unlock your potential and fuel your success. (laughs)
0: Right, this is The Advisory Board with Megan Flamer and Alan Jones. Not that Alan Jones.
1: It's so lovely to have your company. We hope you're having a really amazing day. Yeah. (laughs) We hope your day isn't too speedy or fast or running around like a headless chicken.
2: Coffee or tea is just right.
1: (laughs) Would you say you're someone who thinks quickly or slowly?
2: I think slowly. Yeah, definitely think slowly. Yeah, I'm usually the last person to have an opinion in, in a group meeting about something. I'll, I'll listen to everybody else and I'll think about it and maybe I'll come up with something at the end of the meeting or maybe I'll have to follow up you know, later on with an email with my thoughts. It takes me a while. How about you?
1: Do you, like, do you think it's discipline that you kind of just keep your mouth shut until later or is it literally that you just in the moment you need time to process?
2: Yeah, yeah. It was, so when people, when other people in the group, you know, rush forward to, to, you know, get into stuff, um, that gives me a great opportunity to, to listen to their opinions and the data and the facts that they bring. Um, and so I can kind of synthesize, I think, a, a much more effective solution or answer or, or idea um, by first. Thinking about what what they would propose, um, so the the challenge with that is that you know often you go into one of these settings with an agenda, with with things you want to share, and and uh, sometimes you know somebody will grab the talking stick and not give it back, and you don't get to share that <laughs> until later. Um, so sometimes it backfires on me, but I, yeah, I'd rather do that way. Listen to everybody else first. How about you?
1: Ah. Uh- Look, I've learned that I need to listen better. (laughs) (laughs) I think and speak very quickly. You do. I really do. Mm. Like I often, if I've tried to kind of explain to people what it's like being in my brain, it feels a little bit like a firework. Mm. So I'll often sort of be like, here's the five-point agenda of the thing that you just said. (laughs) I had all of these thoughts all at once. And so... A big part of why I meditate, for example, is because it gives me a, a more wherewithal with slowing things down, mm-hmm. with being able to tell the difference and, and disentangle many of the thoughts that I'm having because they often just come all at once and very quickly. Everything, yeah. everywhere, all at once. That's kind of <laughs> the way my brain works. And, um, yeah, and I also do speak often too quickly. So it's it, it's a very big thing for me to learn to breathe, learn mm. to meditate, yep. learn to slow down. Yep. I've often said to friends and partners, like, imagine if I didn't meditate, what would that be like? <laughs> and they all shake their heads sadly and think, oh, it's already uh, exhausting.
2: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, you know, I'm like Eric Clapton. I play the guitar slowly mm. and, uh, and I'm one of Australia's slowest trail runners. And uh, you know, so slowness is probably a bit probably the only place where I'm fast is in the kitchen, mm. you know. Yeah, so that that um, that kitchen hand training, you know, basic cooking skills and and moving fast and getting things done so the ingredients are right for the next stage altogether, yes. I, I get a real buzz out of that. Operating the coffee machine, making the toast. And poaching the eggs and slicing up the avocado all at the same time—that gives yes. me a buzz. That yeah, I can I love only that. keep it up for an hour. You know.
1: Oh, I love that, like short order cooking. Mm, and, mm. But I, I notice as well that you know I love slow travel. Like I love slow, slow, slow travel. I love yep. going to one place and not rushing around. Mm. I really love going out into nature and not going anywhere or just going for slow, delightful walks or being places where I can't do anything but the thing. Like I'm forced into, say, being in the ocean is just you being in the ocean. That's it. Like you can only do the one thing or going to a pottery class or, you know, we can't literally use your hands for anything else. I love that. Like being forced to slow down is actually a very happy, beautiful thing for me.
2: That is a magical experience, yeah, for sure. Yeah, for sure. So, speed is one of the things that makes startups different to other industries, right? So, we, you know, we, startups can compete. We have two unfair advantages over over the big hairy gorillas in any market. Mm. We can move faster, and we can use technology to move faster. Yes. Um. So, speed is generally considered to be a good thing, in, in startups. and and startups. I think I think we have a letter about that today.
1: Yeah, and I'd love to pick uh pick your brain a bit more about. Just general impatience in startups because I think our, our next letter certainly uh, has that flavour. Hmm. Dear advisory board, we just finished our first accelerator program. We're still pretty early stage, but we got some great feedback from our demo day pitch and several new customers from that launch alone. The product people are asking for is still a year or so away. We're just two founders and we're going to need to build like crazy to grab our market. We have some money to support us and I'm still working on the side to pay rent, but we need to fundraise and fast to make this dream a reality. How fast can we raise capital from feel the need for speed?
2: Thank you, feel (laughs) the need for speed. Thank you for taking time out because you've got a lot to do and a lot of time to get it done.
1: Yes. And I'm, you know, I'm excited to hear that you have a co-founder because one of the things that I think people forget about fundraising or don't know yet about fundraising is that it can be almost a full-time job.
2: Oh yeah, absolutely. I know experienced startup uh, founders who will tell you that, you know, the role of a CEO of a startup is to do two things, raise money and hire people mm-hmm. and then go out and raise money so that you can hire more people <laughs> yeah. and raise more money so that you can hire more people. Yeah. Um, and certainly in growth times, you know, that, that is the job.
1: Yes, but there's something between, and I like what you said before, you know, in a startup, we're trying to do things quickly and we're trying to use technology, but fundraising can take a long time.
2: Yeah, yeah, because there's, there's not very much that technology can do to help us raise money more quickly, eg- except maybe give you access to a big database of, of investors. Yes, Certainly so some of those databases can be a little bit out of date and inaccurate, but, mm. you know, so some people will go for a spray and pray approach and and aim to reach out to to more investors in, in less time and maybe use, you know, email automation um, to to make it look like, you know, a CRM product to make it look like you're receiving handwritten emails <laughs> from from a, from a startup CEO. And really it's just a, a series of email templates that the CRM is, is spitting out on, on a time or a response basis. So there are some technologies that we can use to kind of make this more of a, of a scale, uh, more of a bulk um, opportunity. But at the end of the day, if, if some of those technology solutions are successful, all we end up with is, is a series of bookings in our, in our calendar. We still have to jump on the phone and begin a conversation and an interaction with a real human being to persuade them that what they were doing before is not as good as, you know, what we're doing right now, and they should get on board as, as an investor. You know, that can take some time. Um, and particularly in a market which perhaps is not as buoyant as it has been over the past few years.
1: Yes. And I think being super organized is one of the things that we underrate in this space. You know, when you're saying the spray and pray kind of side of it. Mm. Often when I've gone in as an entrepreneur in residence where I would be having a conversation or coaching a founder. I'm trying to get them organised about like who have you spoken to? How many times have you spoken to them? What are you asking for? Which deck did you use? Mm. Put it all in an air table. Put it all in a spreadsheet. Make sure that you are really organised because that is one of the first things that gets really out of control. Mm. You get confused about who you've told what to, what you're recommending, who you've spoken to. People People do and you don't follow up and you're not great with them. Your job is to be the more organised, the more on top of it, the the better party, because I also know that a lot of angel investors and investors in general will be very scattergun and disorganized, and they're only going to go with what's top of mind. So you have to be the organized one and the great one.
2: Absolutely. So, you know, angel investors uh, have the luxury of, of not having to invest right now. You know, so a venture fund manager has a fund of a known size, there's an the amount of capital they have to deploy, and they also have a time frame in which they have to do that. They mm. have the right the first checks into 20 companies, say, and then two or three years after that, they need to figure out which of those 20 companies to write second checks into, and then after that, maybe a third check, and then hopefully there'll be some kind of exit event. So there, there's a, there's a calendar of events. A VC is under you know, less pressure than you as a founder, but they still have to get it done. Angel investors, on the other hand, you know they're investing their own money. It's discretionary play money for mm-hmm. them, and so there's nothing that they have to do. So when you're raising those rounds that are typically led by angel investors, so an angel round or a pre-seed round, um, perhaps you're coming out of an accelerator program as as we are here, um, those angel investors are a very difficult herd of cats to corral you know, mm. because they really don't have any time pressure or any capital pressure to deploy there.
1: Mm. And you've raised... Money before, like you've I <laughs> say several I'm, different iterations.
2: I wouldn't say I'm the best at it by any means. I'm, I, um, so you know, I'm learning as I go about how to do that. And, and the challenge for me, and the challenge for everybody out there raising money, is that the the competition gets stronger and more powerful and more effective all of the time, all of the time. Um, so, you know, there are, um, VCs out there in Australia who I admire enormously for the, for their ability to, to be very effective in their, in their raising. I just saw again, um, the other night in Sydney, Maxine Minter from, from Coventure. Yes. Um, incredible young VC, um, doing an amazing job and boy, she has corralled a lot of investor interest in a short period of time and done some excellent deals. So, you know, that, that operator reputation spreads. So, um, You do well with one investor, convert one investor quickly, cleanly, effectively, Mm -hmm. that person is much more likely to introduce you to a friend of theirs who might also be able to invest in in, in what you're doing next.
1: Reputation matters a lot. And network and conversations, like have conversations early, be having, you know, conversations with people in general about what you're building do what you said you would do. I think that's one of the most powerful things that I've seen with founders, like when they're getting started, going and having conversations pretty early with a couple of investors or with people who are in that space and then ask them, What do you think I should do? Or, you know, where do you think I should move with this? And then go and deliver on that and come back to them and say, hey, we're probably going to raise in the next year, six months down. I've done everything that you said that I was, you know, that Mm. you would recommend. What do you think? What's next? It's also a way to build a mentoring network and an advisory board potentially. Um, You know, obviously we're your first and most beloved advisory board, but it's always helpful to have your own advisory board as well. It is. I've done the fundraising route a couple of times where I've done it, you know, with companies that I've worked with and had those conversations. I've done it twice with my own companies and both times chosen not to take the capital, (laughs) (laughs) which is a friend of mine still calls me the, yeah, I'm (laughs) control freak. She's like, you're an idiot. Um, The first time I think it was the right move because it was unsolicited just came and someone wanted to buy the company and was really excited about it and I was very happy with how it's gone and with what it's gone on to do and um, I I just think it was the right move to not um, continue down that path and and to have someone buy it out and then for me to have all of the reporting for it and and various things like that. It just wasn't that sort of company. Um, It was a tech scalable company but it wasn't what I was looking to do with it. Mm -hmm. And then the second time... I do have to admit that, yes, it probably would have scaled and grown and done a lot better if I had actually taken some investment, probably not the amount that we were looking for, but I think if we had been a little more clever and particular about how we took it and how we had those conversations and finding the right investors, it would have been the right move. But I still maintain that the investors who were offering weren't the right ones and they weren't on board or really cared about the mission. And for me, mission is everything. There's just no point to it. Um, I am maybe a little bit funny in that I'm like, you can always find more money. You can always find another avenue. You can always do different projects. Like I, I feel like one of those people who's always kind of open to opportunity and change and doing different work um i don't really worry so much about you know making a zillion dollars or about that sort of scalability side even though i've helped a lot of people do that it's (laughs) not really the thing that i'm driven by or that i care about yeah um so yeah i think being clear about your why and what you're doing i do want to make sure that we really answer answer what feel the need for speed needs. Yeah. How I mean,
2: fast can we raise capital? How yeah. fast
1: can we raise capital?
2: So I just touched on it there. You know, so so the market's on a bit of a downturn at the moment, and so there are cycles in the market driven mm-hmm. by the supply and demand, yes. number of ideas out there and the opportunities for those ideas. And then on the other side, on the supply side, the 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 cap. Sorry, the demand side, the the capital, um, the the number of investors at what sort of valuation multiples they might be interested in investing in, and and how quickly they might be prepared to invest. And so. You know, the short answer is compared to the last five years, the next, you know, this year and and the next few years are going to be, you know, quite a bit more slowly. The answer in general to um, when should I begin raising capital (laughs) is a couple of years ago.
1: You're listening to the advisory board with me, Megan Flamer.
2: And me, Ellen Jones. And we're
1: talking about raising capital. And look, this is something that we can talk about until the cows come home. We'll have many episodes about this. We've talked about the gender side of it. We're talking about how to get it done. But this particular letter from Feel the Need for Speed is about how fast they can raise capital. And Alan and I have been in this situation a few times before, but we thought it's probably prudent to bring in someone who really, really knows what they're doing in this space and they've Mm. done it specifically for this in this way and has done it quickly and sometimes slowly. You've done it more than once, I think. Uh, Tim Brewer is the CEO of Functionly, which is self-service organisational design software, and he's very, very kindly agreed to join us while he's on vacation in the Mentawi Islands in Indonesia. He's a very keen surfer, folks, so I think the swell is probably pretty delightful where he
0: is. Tim, thank you so much for joining us. Me and Alan, it's great to um, join you. I am looking over my laptop at the waves at the moment, so it it could be a little distracting, but thanks for having me along.
1: (laughs) So you've done this a few times, but let's talk about your most recent fundraising round
0: yeah, so, um, as said, I'm the CEO of Functionly. Um, we help leaders fix their gaps, cracks, and overlaps in their organization structure. Um, I'm based in Perth, Australia, uh, but our company is global, I'm predominantly US customers, but are in almost 40 countries around the world. Um, we chose to raise last year as a, a seed extension, um, given we're heading into some tougher raising times. Um, To kind of cut straight to the chase of how long it takes to raise a round, it took us about three months of preparation and execution to close commitments for the round um, and about two months to collect all the cash. The round closes once you've banked all the cash generally, depending on the mechanism used to fundraise. Um, but the net net is it took quite a large amount of time and effort to close. And I think that's kind of a result of the times. But I think that's pretty commonly the place, but definitely learned some things through that.
2: Tim, let's um, let's go a little bit deeper into what you had to do in that three months you spend Mm -hmm. organizing and and getting everything in shape. Can you tell us about some of that process?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, The first thing I'll say, Alan, and I think um, when you hear someone's kind of open and closed around in, let's say, a couple of weeks or a month, you don't always understand what goes on behind the scenes. And I've just never seen a round close super fast without some kind of compelling out-of-market terms, opportunity, or hellishly competitive round. Um, Or it's a founder that's exited $3 billion businesses and they're just doing the next thing and everyone just wants to be in their round or whatever it it might be. Um, And it's hard sometimes, particularly for people raising for the first time or that don't have some of those signals and history, to kind of understand that really quick, high-velocity rounds aren't the normal and it just takes a lot of work. So this is what we did. The first thing we um, we spend a lot of time, I go each year and I guess I go on a building relationship tour with our current investors. I make sure that we get high quality, consistent communication out to them about what we're doing. It's very honest and straightforward um, and spend time helping them out, to be honest. And I don't see that as me talking to them about what we're doing as much as it's just trying to help them out. So I will refer other great startup founders that I meet that are looking to raise, I will introduce them um, well to investors that I know and try and help fill that investor's pipeline or find them the best deals or get them access. I also go as a reference sometimes for investors that I know and trust um, in rounds that are more competitive and just try and kind of be a good steward in the ecosystem. But ultimately, in my mind, it's about building a, a strong relationship with investors in the good times, when you're not out raising for funds, so that when you are talking about raising for funds, you get more honest feedback and have a bit bit deeper of a relationship investment there. That, um, and I find that that over time, over many years, has worked reasonably well. If the rest of what we're doing stacks up competitively um, or comparably to the rest of market.
1: Tim, you've had exits, and you worked with Dropbox, and you're on advisory boards and actual boards, and you're a chair of boards. Like This is not your first rodeo in any way. You know, when you're looking at what was different when you were first looking for investment to now when you've been around the block a few times, what can you see are the skills that you really developed?
0: I can tell you the things I don't think I did well Mm -hmm. early on. Um, And it was probably about how quickly you can learn about kind of investment market fit as kind of how I'd describe it, but you're wanting investors, I have this very particular memory which frames it up, but I'll I'll kind of describe it before I explain the memory. Um, You need to have investors tell you how comparable you are to the other investments they're seeing Mm. in the market at that time, how you stack up, um, are you competitive and are you marketable? So competitive is like, do you even stand a chance against the other things they're looking at? Um, it's a bit to do with comparable. Marketable is, oh, we've got this great idea, but I've got these crazy, peculiar terms. And the investor's lawyers are like, what the friggin' heck are these guys doing as founders? Or you've decided to raise from another country. And so instantly you end up with some level of friction because you're raising from an investor that's not used to, say, investing in Australia. Um, and I remember being in San Francisco one time. I was talking to a fairly well-known investor, um, and chatting about things. And they pulled me aside. and They're like, "It was very, very early with what we're doing, but they loved what we were working on. It functionally, they thought there's a big need in market for like a canva of org design." And they said, "Look, we'll be really honest with you, Tim. We love what you're doing. We're keen to look at it as investment, but we have a concern, and that is you're Australian." <laughs> like, <laughs> okay, can you please explain? They're like, "Look, most, are uh, we love Australia." And they're getting more and more serious startups out of Australia. This was like quite a long time ago, maybe seven, uh, five years ago. Like, But we just kind of think you guys are just kind of super relaxed and you don't really know what it takes to grow a serious startup. And we're just a little concerned that you're like a lifestyle founder. If you want to go surfing in Indonesia, they didn't say that, but that was my interpretation. <laughs> and the next, uh, what I what I learned from that, and they're like, no one else is going to, I've been to probably 20 meetings in the Bay Area over that week. And it was the first investment that told me the truth. And what I worked out is I wasn't hearing the truth for our investors. And what I needed to do is ask the very awkward question at the end of a pitch or at the end of talking to partners, like, guys, I need you to give me the truth. How did I stack up? What concerns you about our, our startup? or about me as a founder and ask these very aw- awkward questions that you don't normally want to lean into in life, you know, because of fear of rejection or whatever it is. You need to hear that stuff because else you are going to continue to pitch or to roll up with your idea looking for funding and you're going to miss the mark. And so the next meeting I walked into, I'm like, oh, hey, my name's Tim Brewer. I'm the founder and CEO of functionally, I'm the most serious fucking Australian founder you have ever met. <laughs> um, and this is why I've done this at drop and just went in like very American style and realized that if you don't get that level of feedback, you're gonna continually miss it. And so every investor meeting I'd go into from that point, I asked for this really I asked these very obvious but awkward questions. And I just feel like if you can do that with your own investors early on when you're not raising as before you raise, when you're building to a raise, and I'll talk about that separately, um, I just find that you can go in eyes wide open. I just meet so many founders that are too scared or fearful or don't want to know the truth about what investors are really thinking, and that's going to catch you off guard. So the best thing you can possibly do is lean into the truth about how you've been seen and perceived. And then most people are really clever and smart, and you'll end up changing and optimizing and working out if going a venture out or through funders is the right path for you as you discussed earlier me
1: you're listening to The Advisory Board with Megan Flamer and...
2: Alan Jones.
1: And we're joined by Tim Brewer, who's the CEO of Functionally self-service organisational design software. He's joining us from Indonesia where he's very kindly <laughs> cutting into his vacation time where the, the waves are apparently very beautiful. But we are discussing advice for a letter from Feel the Need for Speed about how fast they can raise capital because they need to do it very quickly.
2: when you're starting cold, so here we've got a letter from somebody who's just come through an accelerator program They maybe met a few potential investors at, at demo day, but it's not like they have you know, a, a, a CRM full of, of 250 uh, investors to, to go out and pitch to. If you were in that position today, do you have so many hacks that somebody at that stage could use to, to um, find the contacts in the first place to go out and pitch to? Uh,
0: that's a really good question, Alan. I don't think I have any ha- hacks for f- finding investors, attending a good conference where all the investors are present by their own choosing and mm-hmm. their calendars are free and vacant. Um, rolling up at Start and having the venture firms or the, the venture partners that were present's calendars available and being able to kind of serendipitously connect was really good for us. And I found that less formal environment where they were all present and socializing, having drinks, chatting over dinner was a very, very effective way to get to meet them in a, um, and just initially build a relationship. And actually, during South Start that trip is what triggered um, the lead for our seed stage round um, over beers, actually. <laughs> um, and then also triggered a, a number of other investors that I met on the trip and um, proceeded into pretty deep conversations with. And so that would probably be my hack, is find the right event or conference that, lots of people are present at where you can get out and get to know people in a more genuine and informal kind of way before you end up being in their office, you know, pitching the partners for a a round of investment.
2: People regularly paraphrase, um, I think uh, it was Mark Andreessen who maybe said it or maybe Peter Thiel, but they said, um, we don't invest in dots we invest in lions right and so investors like to invest in people they've known for a little mm-hmm. while companies that they've known for a little while and, and before you're ready to raise capital and we say you know the right time to start raising capital is 18 months ago what we mean is that that's, that's time to, to find ways to meet people and get to know them as a person and have them get to know you as a person because nearly every investment decision is a, de- a decision to back a founder or a founding team as much as it is about a company right? And so you've got to get to know the people before you're ready to write a check.
1: It's that part of being in the ecosystem as well, right? So pitching at pitch events and having conversations in events and and being out there, being a founder who does such a great pitch that people are talking about it and that people know who you are. And also just being a part of the community. I really love what you said, Tim, about being useful, to people and going around and trying to be useful and connecting with them so that you can really build those relationships, not in a purely taking way, but looking at how you can contribute to the ecosystem at large, to other founders. You know, there's a reason that this ecosystem works in that way where you're often giving back a lot as well as asking for favours or asking for things that you can, you know, help with as well. So, if we bring it back to feel the need for speed, Tim, you know, is there any way for them to reliably fundraise quickly?
0: I don't know if there is any guaranteed way to do that. I think there are certain things to keep momentum in around. And maybe if I quickly cover off on the three things we did that seem to work fairly well. The first thing is I spent a lot of time before we even announced a round finding a lead. And the lead for me is someone that not only wants to put in a lion's share or a largest check and help set the terms and negotiate those, but it's also someone that's willing to get out there and introduce you to a bunch of other people. And I've met a lot of people who have led rounds that don't have a a gravity of network and, but, but can write a lead check. And I've met people that write slightly smaller checks, but a, a, crazy influential in terms of introductions to other investors and pitch our company better than us and um, I'm very indebted and grateful for those people over my lifetime of both investing and um, being a founder. The second thing is I don't launch our round until we have 50% of the round committed verbally. So by the time we start drawing up paperwork and kicking off the round. We're announcing. Oh, hey, we're going to do this round. The terms are set. This is what they are. It's very marketable and low friction for everyone to understand. And by the way, we're fifty percent committed in the round. Are you interested in joining in? Even though I might have a bunch of other people that have shown interest but not committed yet, people feel a lot better when there's a referenceability of people that are backing the round, and you're over halfway by the time you open up the round officially. And then the last thing is, you need to be prepared to close the round well. Um, if you're issuing shares until you collect all the cash. It's not closed yet. And I see a lot of people lose momentum as they're collecting cash. We go out very quickly and try and collect signatures and put in the effort and momentum and focus until we've completely closed the round. The last thing you want to do when you light up your next fundraising round, if you need it, is to have poorly done paperwork or to have one investor that's not put their cash in because you've not, got them the information they need um, or closed the round well. So getting a good lead, 50% of the round committed before we launch and um, make sure you're willing to put in the time to properly close the round and get all the cash collected are the three things that helped us keep momentum. Um, But there's there's no magic, you know, silver bullet, I don't think.
1: Tim, that's such fantastic advice. Thank you so much. And I know that Feel the Need for Speed will certainly have a lot to take forward and uh, take action with from your amazing advice. So thank you so much for joining us.
0: Total pleasure. Thanks for having me, Alan. Megan, it's great to speak with you both again.
1: But I hope that's been useful for you. Feel the need for speed. Uh, I hope that you've got some really great actionable advice there and Mm. can figure out what the next steps are. Might not happen as quickly as you want, but I hope it does happen.
2: We sure do hope it does. Good luck with that.
1: This is the Advisory Board. I'm Megan Flamer.
2: And I'm Alan Jones.
1: You can reach out to either Alan or myself on LinkedIn or on Instagram or to Disrupt.Radio. You can tune in to us live between 11am and 1pm on DAB+. Plus, or you can jump on Disrupt.Radio and listen to us anytime. We will be back very soon. On Disrupt Radio, you'll hear Nick Bratt. Life comes down to moments,
2: and how you respond to these moments can shape our lives. Picture spending every waking moment training your ass off to compete as a diver in the Olympics. Making it to the qualifying round, hitting your head on a diving platform with the whole world watching, only to get back up on that platform, seize the moment and win the gold medal.
1: Soul Trader provides you with invaluable insights, guidance and inspiration to become the best version of yourself as an entrepreneur and a human being.
2: And my coach Ron O'Brien
0: came to me and said, well, you know, it's just two years to the next Olympics. And I said, okay, two years, I can do two years. But a lot happened in that two years.
1: Nick Brax helps your mind, body and soul find a work-life balance sheet with Soul Trader.
2: Live on DAB+, online and on demand at disrupt.radio.